name and greetings from Harmony Christian Fellowship. Uh, my wife also extends greetings. We have one of our daughters at home with pink eye today, so uh, everybody was really anxious to come pay a visit here and didn't work out the way we planned. I don't know if you find life to be that way. That is just how it is sometimes. Well, uh, glad it's not more serious issues. Thank you for that opening. That was a blessing this morning to be here, to be reminded. Uh, probably nothing new, right? And yet it's good and it's healthy for us to be reminded. Recently, uh, in studying early church writings, I came across something that was precious, and that was the early church illustration used to explain the Trinity. They talked about the sun, which, of course, a mass of burning, boiling gases They talked about the light, the rays that come from the sun, which, of course, you can see. Can anybody see the sun? You really can't. You can't look on the sun. It's too intense. But you do see light that comes from it. And then, of course, the heat that's produced from that sun and that light, um, you don't see the heat. Now, maybe on a hot day, you look at the road, you might see some waves, but... The heat is felt, not seen. And so that mass that's unable to be looked upon is sort of a representative of God. The light beams that come forth from it, different just a little bit in nature than the mass itself, and yet inseparably a part of it, is the sun. And that which is felt but not seen, the Holy Spirit. I thought that was a pretty neat illustration to teach even the most uneducated, illiterate people about the Trinity. Maybe better than the mango and the egg that I've used in the past. All right. Well, I appreciate, too, that song that was just picked because the title of our message today is Right Beliefs in Shoe Leather. Right Beliefs in Shoe Leather. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Titus. Now, I enjoy word studies, I enjoy linguistics, uh, looking at language, uh, but I usually don't go real deep into Greek things because I don't speak Greek. It's all Greek to me. It is interesting to look sometimes when we read per- portions of Scripture and it's not new to us. Matter of fact, I've probably read this portion of Scripture 30 or 40 times in my Christian lifetime. And after a while, you just read it and you don't ponder deeply about what is being said and why are certain words being used the way they're used. So we're going to read chapter 2. But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience. Aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be blasphemed. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded in all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to save you. Exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters and to please them well in all things, not answering again, 
not purloining, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. May the Lord bless the reading of his words to us today. Now, maybe today will be a little more of a teaching and less of a preaching, but I think that there is a, a value to considering method of how we look at Scripture. We are living in a day with tremendous confusion. I was talking to some people recently and just talking about that kind of confusion. These were folks that he's from India and she was raised in Lancaster County and they attend a large mega church in Lancaster County and was just trying to challenge, as people I just met for the first time, challenge them to consider well, how do I discern between the 10,000 different churches that are in the world today? How do I discern between the thousand who claim that they're the only true How do I discern when I look at the, the doctrines that are almost opposite extremes from one side to the next? How do I try to know that I'm truly walking the way God wants me to walk? Is it enough to just say, well, I'm in a group and this is what we do? Is it enough to say that? Now, there's nothing wrong with brotherhood and, and, and a brotherhood agreeing together on things. But when it gets down to me witnessing to a Muslim on the street, you better have a little more than that. Or if it gets down to a Jehovah's Witness has knocked on your door and they have, with very inviting words, convinced you that uh, certain things you always believed weren't true. Are you going to be able to say, well, but my brotherhood believes this? You better have something just a little bit deeper than that. And so I think it's important to look at. And this is a chapter that's very practical, but I'd like to look at it from a study aspect of how do we go about it. The very first word in this chapter is the word but. And whenever you see the word but in studying scriptures, why, it is a plea to read more. And that more is before, not after, necessarily. And so it helps to look back and see there's a contrast that has come. And I'm going to explain then what's that contrast. Here's the one thing, but here's the other. So in order to get a, a real context for this, we need to go back and look at chapter 1. Let's just go there and read verses 4. We'll find out uh, quite a bit more about the statements made in chapter 2. To Titus, mine own son, after the common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. For this cause I thee in Crete, that thou set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city as I have appointed thee. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly. For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, 
but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for lucre's sake. One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said, The Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. This witness is true. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. Under the pure, all things are pure. But under them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. But even their mind and conscience is defiled. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient, and unto every good work reprobate. So that's what precedes the but. We have false teachers. We have things that are going on. We are a culture that has gone awry. Let's talk about it a little bit. Titus is one of Paul's disciples. We learn that in this lesson. He's a beloved son in the spirit. It would sound as though maybe Paul even led him to the Lord, but it wasn't just a matter of leading him to the Lord. He has discipled him and trained him. And uh, Titus is also expressed here as having a certain calling. Calling as an overseer, or you could say an apostle, in church planting work to a specific place. Where was the place? Did you catch it? Where was it? Crete. Where on earth is Crete? Crete is an island, yes. Where else? Where, where Can we get more specific? There's lots of islands. Eastern Mediterranean. Eastern Mediterranean, very good. We're getting real close now. Yes, Crete is actually an uh, interesting place, as I was doing a little more looking into it. And we'll talk about that some more later. But Titus has a specific calling to be an overseer in a church planting work. We have to piece together some of the details that aren't all there. It would appear as though Paul has gone to Crete, preached the gospel, but wasn't staying long, was successful. People were converted. But now he recognizes a very important next step. And this I'd like to drive home. It's not enough to convert people. Okay, the Ethiopian eunuch is the exception, not the rule. The Ethiopian eunuch was a very unique situation. But for the most part, that's not the norm. For the most part, the norm is that where those believers got converted, there will also be a body of them. And where that body is, there will be some organization. And I want to emphasize that because we're living in a day where it is often taught that the early church didn't have any leadership, didn't have any organization. It was kind of a, a holy free-for-all. Which isn't true, one bit. And what Paul says, I have left you intentionally in Crete to set some things in order. And one of those setting things in order is you're going to ordain leadership in the churches. Now, I can tell you from being in Haiti, maybe we didn't do it right, but this is what we did. When we got there, we were asked to sit in and just learn in a Wesleyan church, which we did. But it wasn't long until the pastor died. Well, they all knew that I was a pastor, so they were uh, saying, well, you need to take over. 
that wasn't the vision. That's not what we were there to do. We were going to learn the culture, learn the language, and go start our own work. We weren't planning to take over an existing church. And so three requests were made to our mission board till finally the mission board said, well, we don't know what else to tell them. At least fill in for now. That was in 1997. 1998, in spring of 98, was when the demon-possessed girls were delivered of their demons and revival broke loose and that year was uh, a blur, uh, to say the least. But a blessed blur. We we would be glad to have that happen again. And uh, literally hundreds of people came to Christ. But most of them didn't know the right hand from their left when it came to Christianity. They really just didn't know. They came because of they believing one principle. All their life they had believed that Satan was more powerful than God. They'd always believed that. And suddenly, with the deliverance of those girls, those girls proved that God was more powerful than Satan. And that turnaround um, was their, their impetus to become Christians. It wasn't great preaching. It wasn't great uh, anything else. It was a great movement of God in the hearts of simple, illiterate mountain people, nominal Catholics, but sold out to voodoo. Well, we saw that it was going to be hard to organize a church like this. First off, the about 15 or 20, however many there were, of existing Wesleyan members, most of them got born again for the first time there during those revival movements. So there were a lot of church warmers, or bench warmers there that had never been saved. And a lot of them did get right with God, thankfully. Now, there were systems in place and the ways they did things, including having women in uh, leadership and a number of other things that we didn't feel like we could work with too closely. And so we felt it was wisdom having this huge influx of new converts We just dissolved. We didn't have a church. And four or five times a week, we preached and we taught and we taught and we preached. And we prayed. And we taught basics of Christianity. We didn't say we didn't have a church. If you'd ask anybody, they'd say, yes, we have church. But it was that necessary with that many new believers Sometimes it almost felt like tending kindergarten more than, than having church. You know, they'd get to carrying on or whatever, uh, childish things. Uh, we had one old brother that used to get happy. Some of you remember Woolbess. Some remember Brother Woolbess. And uh, he, he, he was very emotional and he'd be sitting up front and I'd be preaching and all of a sudden his eyes would tear up and I, I knew it was coming. And after all, he's going, Well, in Creole, if you could translate it, the women would be yelling, sick him, sick him, sick him, because he's, he's barking like a dog. And the deacon would be scolding the girls to stop that, and then he'd be turning and laughing. So, if sometimes it's a little bit like tending kindergarten. And yet a necessary element of helping people transition from being ungodly heathen, devil worshippers, to becoming Christians. And so, I kind of feel like we 
we're doing what the New Testament pattern was here in Titus. It took us two years to get to the place, almost two years, where we had a committee of more mature men. They appeared to be advancing, growing, having good thinking, and we formed a committee. And we, on purpose, made that committee a new committee. It was a new committee for this group. It was all men. Uh, The old committee for the Wesleyan Church had about half women and half men. And so this was a new committee for the organization of what we're doing right now. And um, as time went on, we ordained all eight of those committee men to be deacons. Now, two of them had been deacons in the past, both of them in Wesleyan churches, but they were reordained as deacons in our church. And as time went on, we ordained one of those eight as a minister, and that's Brother Levy. He is minister there yet. And today we have some other elders there that are, are uh, being very faithful in the work local. But see, everything is progression. It was two years until we had our first communion. It was two years. Communion had been cut off voluntarily by them. They had had an open form of communion that allowed for witch doctors to come and take communion. And Bruce had enough foresight to say that this is not right. We are, we are desecrating a holy thing. And we need to stop until we know what we're doing. And so they stopped communion before we ever got there. Discontinued it. In Haitian culture, communion is normally observed, if not weekly, at least once a month. And so that's a big thing for them. That was a big thing for them to not have communion. But they did agree together that they really didn't want what they had. After um, the first communion, the old men that remembered how it was in the Wesleyan church, they wept. They wept. They said, everything that we have ever done before was just child's play. This was for real. This was for real. A little different than maybe we would do. Ours was a totally closed communion with 300 people in attendance with only 100 committed members. Why, it was a little hard for our brothers and sisters to feel clear to stand up and make confessions before a congregation because, well, it's not just there, but, you know, we have telegraph, we have telephone, and we have telehaitian. And if you telehaitian, it gets there faster. Um, we used to have, in reality, a person stand up and make a confession in church before they get back the two hours to their home zone, it was already talked about in their home zone. And so they just clammed up. They wouldn't talk, wouldn't confess, and that bothered me. And so when we had our first communion, it was for those who had made a commitment to the new, the new group, the new fellowship, and they um, needed to clear some things out of the air. They needed to make some things straight. And we had a beautiful time of open confessions where the doors were closed and uh, I saw some neat things happen. I can't relate them all. It was, it was neat. Um, even to the point of a son just breaking down, weeping, getting on his knees before his mother and asking her for forgiveness. Um, those kind of things happened. And for the first time, they practiced uh, feet washing. We set up benches in a U. We set up benches in a U. And uh, each brother washed another brother's feet. We added a piece of Haitian culture as we we did the communion first. 
They had never experienced breaking the bread and passing it from brother to brother or taking the cup and passing it from brother to brother. In Catholic form, the minister always broke the bread and placed it on your tongue. Well, this was something new to them. So um, we added a piece of Haitian culture, and that is the washing of hands. The washing of hands, uh, again, for a very primitive people, is a beautiful gesture of hospitality. And so they walk with a basin and soap and a towel, and they go from person to person and wash hands. It happens at um, meals when you go out to a, a Haitian home. We did it before communion. And I thought it's probably a wise thing for them to consider. But it is also accepted very readily as a hospitality thing, something showing of love and appreciation. Water is a very, very, very valuable resource, so it's never wasted. Uh, so the idea of offering someone else water and soap that you have to pay money for, that's all uh, very special to them. So we did that. God moved in an interesting way there and is still moving. Uh, is the church in Haiti all that I wish it would be? I can't say that it is. But is it moving forward? Is God at work there? We were down in February and uh, taught seminars for three days there and had the Sunday morning message. And after the Sunday morning message, there was an invitation and a spontaneous response. And we counseled and counseled and counseled for a couple hours with people who were seeking especially second generation young people uh, coming now into uh, the existing church situation and yet recognizing they need to get right with God. So, there is a place. There's a place for leadership. There's a place for giving oversight. There's a place for a new work to have a plan and to uh, work that plan out. And it won't always look the same every place, every time, will it? You know, where you have a congregation made up of basically... Uh, believers who uh, are not new to Christianity. Maybe they're a new believer, but they're not new to Christianity. It works a little bit differently. The dynamics are somewhat differently. We notice Titus had this calling. This was a calling upon his life. Specifically, it was to discipleship of indigenous leaders. It wasn't Titus, we want you to come in and lord it over this church, and this is where you're going to be till you die. Um, you know, that kind of appeals to our flesh to think that way. But that's not really God's plan for New Testament churches. God's plan for New Testament churches is that this apostle, this special messenger in a, a limited way, is coming to Crete and he is going to help and he's going to get this thing organized and then probably he's going to have another calling to go elsewhere and do something else. And so his goal was to raise up leadership within that church and give them some guidance and direction, and correct some things that were wanting. Well, you know, that is a beautiful picture, and if you flip back just a couple of pages there in Second Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes a similar thing to Timothy when he says, And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. So Paul is saying, What you, Timothy, have heard from me, I want you to go forth and teach to faithful men. Remember I'd said about the committee of older men, mature men, men that were progressing spiritually? They didn't have all their act together, but they were doing well. They were moving forward in the right direction. And God says through Paul to Timothy that he's to find those men and teach them, but he's to make sure that he not only teaches them what are the right things to do, what are the brotherhood's agreements, but 
the ability to teach others how to do the same. That takes heart conviction, doesn't it? If I'm going to convince you of something, you know, I was a salesman. I sold TVs and appliances before I was a Christian. And uh, I was a great salesman. But there was one thing I couldn't sell. Did I tell you this before? What couldn't I sell? Extended warranties. I couldn't sell extended warranties because I didn't believe in them. I had no heart conviction that that was a good thing to spend your money on. Matter of fact, I knew it wasn't a good thing to spend your money on because I knew what the profit level was in that product. (laughs) Yeah. You need to be convinced of what you're selling. I don't care what you're selling. You need to be convinced of it. Could you sell generators if you didn't believe you needed one? Could you? Well, you'd have to be a pretty good liar. But, uh, yeah, it would be hard to do that if you didn't really believe it was a valuable product for someone to have. We want to uh, not just focus on making converts, we want to also make disciples. And we want to talk a little bit about what that means practically. Titus was called to these Cretan people. They were a very ancient culture steeped in paganism. Okay? Uh, we have records that go way, way back of the Minoan culture, and they will call him the semi-mythical king, King Midas. You ever hear of King Midas? The myths about King Midas, everything he touched turned to gold. Well, that isn't probably exactly the way it worked, but King Midas was a wealthy, wealthy man, and this became a very, very prosperous place. They had a big fertile plain. There was mountains, four different mountain ranges on this island. The island's not really that big, 160 miles long, but only 7 to 35 miles wide. So, uh, uh, brother, you've been to Haiti. You think about that peninsula that runs out to Okai, out that way. That kind of reminds me of that. That's... Where we lived was 30 miles wide, um, and I don't know if it gets any narrower than that either there, but if you can imagine going down all the way to seven miles wide on parts of this island of Crete. But it became a very prosperous place as archaeology today is still digging up some of the labyrinth palaces that they had built and the beautiful artwork. Um, it is also evident that it was a place well known for its excesses and its sensuality. Their artwork gives that away. Public immodesty and even nudity was apparently acceptable. Um, but their own poet, Epimenides, wrote in 600 AD. And Paul quotes him and says that the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. That was a Cretan poet 600 years before Christ that uh, wrote about his own people. Very ancient culture steeped in paganism. Original home to the Philistines. I didn't know that, that little detail I came upon in study. Uh, The Philistines, who were that ungodly thorn in the side of Israel uh, on the coast of uh, the Mediterranean there, uh, the Gaza Strip, were uh, originally Cretan. Okay, well, let's look on here. They became prosperous through trade with Egypt, Greece, and the Middle East, so they got around. There were Jewish colonies established there as early as 140 B.C., and by 66 B.C., the Romans had taken over the country. So, we're talking about ancient pagan influences. Now we've got Greek pagan influences and Roman pagan influences all culminating together in one people group. Do you think there were some things that needed to be set in order? If there was going to be a Christian church there? 
I suspect there were. Well, that was Titus's calling. So what are the things that Titus needed to teach? That's when we get into our chapter. And I find it interesting, I don't know if you caught it, but four times the word sober was used in what I read this morning, and soberly was used once at the end. And that got my attention recently, and I started doing some studies. Because I've read this many times, but that word sober didn't jump out at me like it did just recently. Why so many times? Then I got to looking it up, and in the Strongs, according to the Strongs, we have actually the four words sober showing in chapter 1 and chapter 2 are four different words. And uh, they're not unrelated words, but they are four different words. And so we have sophron in chapter 1, verse 8, nephileos in chapter 2, verse 2, sophronizo in chapter 2, verse 4, and sophronio in chapter 2, verse 6. And so our English language, um, we kind of brought them together, and sober is actually part of the definition of every one of those. So it wasn't wrong to translate the word sober, but I thought in looking at some of those words a little closer, we can actually gain some insight. You know, we read that the aged men should be sober. Well, the first usage of the word sophron is in chapter 1, verse 8, where it's talking about the bishops. And that word sophron simply means sound in mind, moderate in opinion and passions, discreet. Those are all things that are required of a leader in the church. So do we catch that? Sound in mind, moderate in opinion and passion. And I think that opinion and passion have to be kind of welded together because many times when we are less than moderate in opinion, it leads to passion, right? (laughs) That's been my experience over the years in my own life. And so as a leader in the church, we're called to those things. Now in chapter 2, verse 2, the aged men be sober, there the word is nephileos. And now that has the added context, the added uh, meaning of circumspect, vigilant. Older men, older brothers within a congregation, circumspect. Bill Gothard gave the example one time, uh, I believe it's in one of the men's leadership manuals, but anyhow, of a bear, a bear walking to a large clearing in the woods. Some of you have been out hunting and maybe came across a um, power line. Now, a young bear might just go strolling right out there. And during bear season, he'd be, he'd be fodder for the rifle. But a mature bear, he doesn't do that. He comes and he realizes, you know what, there's potential for danger here. And he looks. He smells the air. He listens. He looks behind him. Then he makes his move. That is what it means to be circumspect. I'm going to carefully consider all angles before we make a move. And older brothers in the church, it is so necessary for us to be sober in that way. We can make or break the future of a church. Either having that circumspectness or lacking it. And then vigilant. Vigilant. I think of 
the man who was set to guard the wall. He's got an eight-hour shift and he needs to guard the wall. And there's a purpose because obviously on the other side of the wall is potential enemy. And that one who is vigilant, he stays awake and alert his whole eight hours. And there isn't any way that the enemy's coming over that wall without him sounding the alarm because he's not asleep at the wheel. He's not asleep at the wheel. That is our calling to being sober, brothers, older brothers in the church. And um, if you're trying to discern whether you're older or younger, um, err on the side of, of being older. <laughs> and don't worry, don't fret, because the younger are called to be sober too. So we, we're going to get to that in a minute. Now, the younger women, in chapter 2, verse 4, they may teach the young women to be sober. Now, by implication, even though in verse 3 is addressed to the age women and sober is not mentioned there, obviously they have to have it or they could hardly be doing what they're asked to do, and that is teach the young women to be sober. So, sobriety is for younger and older women. And this is where the word sophronizo is used. Now, like sophron, which is its root word, it, it's similar and yet it adds to make a sound mind. And that is by discipline or correcting. To make your mind sound by discipline or correcting. Have you ever had thoughts? And the more you thought about them, the more you began to believe them. Sister, has that ever happened to you? Have you ever thought, you know what? I think that... You know, she didn't say good morning to me this morning. And um, I wonder if, if she's mad with me or did I do something wrong? Or, and after a while, if we're not careful, our mind can run away with us. Am I just imagining that? Is that just something I made up? Or maybe that's happened already. That ever happened to you? You know, we have sound minds because we have to discipline our minds. Even correcting them sometimes. And when I begin to allow my mind to think the worst, that's a time for discipline and correction. When I am sure that someone else, the worst case scenario is the real, and I don't know that for a fact, my next step is going to be to open my mouth and utter it. And there's where I fall into tail-bearing. Tail-bearing. I'm telling something that could be true, but I don't know that it is. I perceived it, and let's face it, you sisters are very perceptive. We know that. We men don't know it. We better learn it. You're very perceptive. But your perceptions are not always right. (laughs) (laughs) You can deal with him later. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, let's be honest. It is, it is apparently from Paul to Titus the perspective that this could be a danger area, especially for sisters. And so he uses this specific word, sophronizo, to talk about the soberness that we need. And you know, that runaway perceptions is actually self consuming. You can wear yourself out 
You can make yourself sick thinking things that aren't even real. They could be, but you don't know they are. And so it's important to get a hold of the reins again and say, whoa, mind, I'm not letting you go there. I'm going to discipline and correct that thinking. It's important. And it isn't that men don't have it. We do too. But there seems to be maybe a little bit greater part of that as just being the difference between our genders. So, we are called to that kind of soberness. Young men, you have a word just for you too. Sophroniel. Down here in chapter 2, verse 6. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded. But it is different than the other three uses of the word sober there. So, what does it mean to young men? Be of sound mind. Be in a right mind. Self-controlled or sober-minded. That is the definition of the word sober that's specific to you. Now, let's think about that one. A sound mind. A sound mind can keep his focus on the kingdom. An unsound mind has his focus on earth. Okay? And so the ability to keep focused, what I was talking about pulling on the reins here, it's really the same thing, is it not? The King James translators were not wrong to use this one word, sober, to explain all of these things we're talking about. But I think it's good for us to see that there are some things that are very specific and deal with us. Does your mind wander sometimes? Dreams? Things you wish for, long for, hope for? Is that wrong? Not at all. But are those things God things? Or are those things flesh things? Again, God gave us appetites on purpose. It's not an accident that we have appetites. But if we don't control our appetites, they'll kill us. They'll kill us spiritually. They'll kill us emotionally. They'll kill us physically. We need to have the reins. And that's what he's talking about. Being sober. Be of a sound mind. Be in a right mind. A right mind is one that considers itself honestly before God. Not beating yourself up and saying, I'm, you know, I'm the dregs of the bottom of the bucket. But not allowing yourself to be self-elevated either. And thinking I'm the greatest. Only God is the greatest. And so, when I can look at myself in my right mind, I am able to say, honestly, before God, as I consider who He is and what I am, that I learn humility, right? Isn't that what it is? It's a right perspective of myself before God. Self-controlled. Sober-minded. Now, you know, brothers, I enjoy laughing. Most of us enjoy laughing. But if we make a life of laughing, I'm afraid we're going to miss sobriety. I'm afraid. And I'm talking to myself. I can easily go down that path. But I think there's a place and a time for everything. And as young men, find out where that line is. Find out where it is. And know when to cut it off. 
Okay, let's go on. Those are just talking about the word sober, and I, it came up so many times that I couldn't help but dig into it a little bit more. But we get some specific um, further teaching. In verse 2, to the older men, they are called to be grave. And that word simply means honorable and honest. Honorable and honest. Honorable means that others looking on can honor me. How important is that? As we form a church fellowship, we're planting church, that the older men are an example that can be looked up to. And um, yes, we're wearing out physically. It doesn't go like it did 30 or 40 years ago. But that doesn't mean we can't be honorable, does it? Honor is not based on what I can do. It's, a, it's a, based on what I, or who I am more than anything else. And I believe that if we will take the, the sober part of being circumspect and vigilant, seriously, we will gain the place of being honorable. And so grave, honorable and honest, sound in faith, and then charity and patience. Patience and charity go together. They really do. If I am patient with others, I will show my charitableness. If I am impatient with others, brothers, is that ever a temptation? It is for me to be impatient. Come on, let's just get with it. This Thursday, buried a man that I've known for a long time since I was a teenager. David Hagee was the presiding elder in the United Christian Church where I pastored for 10 years. And he was killed in a farming accident last Saturday, so they had his burial this Wednesday. But one of the things that stood out about David, David knew me when I was a very ungodly teenager. Uh, He knew me when I ran off from home. He knew me when I went and got married without permission. He knew me when I was a drunkard. He knew me all those, all those ways. David somehow always maintained a bit of a friendship with me in the community there. Not because he liked what I was doing. But I'm convinced that he looked at what I could be rather than what I was. And um, as I thought about his death and his life, that is what stood out to me. He looked at others without a critical eye. He looked at others charitably. And he considered what they could be through Jesus Christ, not what they were at the moment. And he was digging on the dregs when he was dealing with me. So, <clears throat> ironically, <clears throat> he, um, for better or for worse, he... Uh, knew there was a young lady in his church who was not a Christian. And here was this hoodlum coming in the back of his church who wasn't a Christian either. And right across the way was another young lady who was in his church who was not a Christian and another hoodlum on the back of the church. His name was William Miller. Well, these two uh, hoodlums sitting there were hearing God speak through the preaching of the word. 
And it used to irritate me to go visit this church with my girlfriend because he always seemed to know what I was doing all week. How did he know that? And he preached about it. Well, eventually God did get a hold of my heart and I got converted. God got a hold of Bill Miller's heart and he got converted. Um, we both ended up marrying as, as non-Christians first. <clears throat> I don't suggest that. That's not the right, right way to go about things if you want to have happy, peaceful, good foundation in marriage. But we both ended up being called into ministry. Uh, God had some interesting sense of humor there in all he did to those two hoodlums sitting in the back of the church. And he still has a sense of humor. Um, we don't know what's up next. We really don't. I only say all of this to say that we need to walk with God. We need to have charity towards others. I want to be that way. We meet people in the streets of Pottsville. Sometimes I can't see skin. I see lots of skin, but I can't see their natural skin for all the tattoos they have. They've got things through their nose. They've got things through their lips. They've got things out their ears. And do I look at them and say, trash. It's disposable. Throw it away. Or do I look at them and say, that's a soul that could be used in the kingdom of God if they were willing and changed. Well, that's tough because I still struggle. I still struggle. And yet it's something we need to get past. We need to have charity and we need to have patience with others because God has had charity and had patience with us. It's the bottom line. If God hasn't had patience with you, you probably don't know him yet. If you don't recognize the amount of patience that he has with you even after you were saved. We need a closer walk with him. We really do. I do. Well, let's go on. We have some specific teachings here. The older men are called to charity and patience. The older women, be careful of the false accusers. We touched on that slander and gossip and sharing things that maybe were only perceptions rather than reality. We need to be careful of that. It's something that needed to be reined in. Avoiding being controlled. I noticed that one. That one stood out to me. Not given to much wine. And I see wine in scriptures. Paul tells Timothy, a little wine for the stomach's sake sounds like medicine. I see uh, the proverb writer in Proverbs 31 O Lemuel, wine is not for kings, but give it to the one who is, you know, near to death. It seems like maybe some kind of pain reliever. But here we're being warned. Sister, don't be looking for that medicine to solve your problems. Hopefully that's not a problem here. I work with people who are on antidepressants, they're on this drug, they're on that drug, they're on the next drug, they're on, and they're taking hands full of pills. 
and I'm talking about older ladies that I'm not even sure that they know what they're taking when they're taking them. But it's become the answer to life's problems. You know, the woman was put on antidepressants when her husband died. Has been on now for years. Years. Now, I understand there's a place for medicine, but there's also not a place for medicine. And when medicine becomes our master, not our servant, it is no longer good for us. Well, there was much for the older women to do. Be jealous over your example and your teaching to young women. Teaching might take the place of a formal class, but I think more often than not, it takes the place of just getting beside and doing life together. As older sisters, younger sisters look on and see you going through the challenges and the trials of life and coming out on the victory side. That is the greatest method of teaching, is it not? How many of you have a perfect husband? If you do, my wife would like to meet you. As you deal with your less than perfect husband in a godly woman's way, you speak to the lies of younger women. You do. It's needful that we don't give in and give up. The world around us is doing it every day. It happens every day. I'm grieved in the office where I work. I am definitely the minority because I'm still with my first wife. And I've seen families break apart and I've seen individuals working in the office get hooked up together. All before my eyes and was helpless to do anything about it to stop it. You are a rare exception, sister. Don't take it lightly. You have a holy calling to be a teacher by example to the next generation. They need to know how to love their husband. And that husband of theirs probably isn't going to be a perfect one either. And so as you exemplify love towards a less than perfect husband, submission to a less than perfect leader, as you exemplify that, you are training the next generation that there is hope in Jesus Christ. I find grace to do what isn't always easy. I know where to go to get to the source. That grace is like a spring that never runs dry. But you know, we can dry up and die of thirst with an empty cup sitting beside the spring. Grace does not flow into your mouth You need to dip into it. But if you'll dip into it, they're sufficient for all our needs. My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made manifest in your weakness. At least that was Paul's testimony, and I believe it was a truth for all of us. And so you're going to teach them how to love their husbands, how to love their children. Some children are really lovable. Some are less than really lovable. But we're called to love them all. You're going to teach by example how to love their children. How to be discreet. Now, what does that mean? Well, actually, I looked up the word and here it is. It's sophron. The same sober that is called to for bishops in the church 
is your calling also. Sophron, sound in mind, moderate in opinion and passion, discreet, sober, knowing when to talk, when not to talk, what to say, what not to say, and when to say it or not say it. Those are all parts of discretion that are tied up as a calling to a, a church leader or bishop, but also to a sister. Older sisters teaching young sisters how to be discreet. Chaste, we know, pure and holy. A natural reserve. Natural? No, it isn't natural. It's unnatural. It is spiritual. A spiritual reserve that says, there are certain parts of me that are for no one but my husband. And we need to teach that because we're living in a society that doesn't think that way. It doesn't think that way. We get into some homes in Pottsville to have Bible studies where I'd love to be able to get everyone in the house in the Bible study because there's some things that would be really beneficial for them to learn just on the subject of modesty. Your body is not for everybody. It's for your husband. And so... Just being a retailer, I'm pretty practical. Don't put on the shelf what isn't for sale. That's just the way it is. Well, the next one's keepers at home. I wanted to look that one up. We all know what that means, right? Well, we think we do. Oikros. <laughs> it means a stayer at home. Someone who's domestically inclined. Good housekeeper. Um, and if that's all making you cringe, don't get excited. I'm not called to judge that of you. Maybe your husband is. But I hope he's not too severe. Um, one of the challenges we have, and I may have said this before, so forgive me. As you get older, you uh, sometimes repeat yourself. And then the worst part is you don't remember you did it. But... As we have become a movement that's interested in homeschooling and home education, we men all like home-baked goods. We all like fresh-made scratch everything, soup and salads and everything. We like it all. Um, and when we all send our children off to school, why our wives had an amazing amount of time to get a lot of that stuff done. But if we're going to homeschool, um, you don't get it both ways. That's just how it comes out. You won't get it both ways. And so, as brothers, we need to be reasonable in our expectation. Sisters, we're not called to be slothful. And so we need to be applying ourselves. We all have different gifts. So if you don't feel like you, your gift is bread baking, you don't have to break, bake bread. But we all have our, our abilities and gifts and we need to apply ourselves. doesn't hurt to learn some things too. My dear wife had to learn a lot of things. She came from a home where there was very dysfunctional. Uh, my wife grew up, she had never eaten broccoli until I took her out on a date at a Chinese restaurant. and She was about totally, thoroughly disgusted because it wasn't food she was familiar with. And so what did I do? Um, took her there again. <laughs> I thought I'll help her get familiar with it. <laughs> her daddy died when she was 11. Her mama went back to work in the city, Hamilton Technology, and um, from six in the morning till about six at night, these girls were on their own. So it was Campbell's soup, Kraft macaroni and cheese dinners, and bologna sandwiches. That she knew. 
But that was about the limit of what she knew. So there were a few things that she learned. It doesn't hurt to learn. It's good to learn. But I think we need to be looking at that with a right mind and a right moderation. If I don't know all those things uh, that I'd like to, that I take them one at a time and add one as I feel comfortable adding it. Not because I feel pressured because so-and-so does this and so-and-so does that. It is something that has happened over the years in our movement that we have ended up putting each other under tremendous amount of pressure to perform certain things that we're not talking about biblical things. We're talking about, that'd be nice. You know, I would like if everybody ate only whole wheat and used no white sugar. I would love that. But, you know, if I put you under the feeling that you have to do that and you say, I've never made whole wheat bread and I just can't get it to come out right and I'm ready to throw the dough against the wall. Don't throw the dough against the wall. Throw it at me if I put you under that pressure. Do you catch what I'm saying? It's important for us to move forward, hear what it talks about, a keeper at home. One who, home is their home. This is where I really want to be. There are many people today who don't want to be home. Matter of fact, there are many women today who are in the workforce who really shouldn't be in the workforce because economically it doesn't make a lick of sense. They're paying for two or three children in child care until they buy uniforms, until they buy the gas and have the extra vehicle, until they have the, the, all the extra stuff they need. Then they get so dead tired by the end of the day that, hey, I'm just going to stop at Hardee's and grab some supper. Till it's all said and done, they're losing money every week. They're losing money every week. And so the bottom line is they don't want to be a keeper at home. They don't love home. Home is ungratifying. Having some kind of career seems gratifying to them. And yet the reality is, if there's ever been a time that we need keepers at home, it's right now. The one who rocks the cradle rules the world. Don't ever think you don't have a valid, important mission field when you say, all I'm doing is training my children. It's a false concept. It's devilish to think that way. And yet, it is a temptation that many sisters face. If you faced it, you're not alone. It's important for us to hold fast to those things that we know are true. To be good, to be obedient to our own husbands. Young men, called specifically to be a pattern of good works. Find good, solid things to do. And you know what? Here I'm going to be able to put a little bit of a, a, a commercial in. Uh, CASP, the Anabaptist Christian uh, service program that is like 1W. We may well have our first project for CASP and our five churches, including Oasis, this fall in September. And we're going to be looking for some young men between 18 and 26 that would like to have some good things to do. It looks at this point like we'll be going to Louisiana and helping with one of the disaster relief projects for four weeks. So you'll be praying about that, young men between 18 and 26, and considering whether or not God would have you to go be part of the first of Harmony Cast unit. But that's only one of the good things that are available for you to do. You know, you can spend your time, and you, I know, I know, I remember 
Believe it or not, I do remember. I thought I was so tremendously busy. I didn't have time for anything when I was a single man. And then I woke up. Because when you say I do, you did. If you thought you were busy single, wait till you're married. Amen. Wait till you're married. You have time today as a single man to do some things that I have no time for at all. And I'm talking about the good things. You may have time to do some things that I don't have time for that aren't good too. But I'm talking about the good things. The potential that you have to serve God in the kingdom as an unattached young single man. When I say unattached, you're not married. You don't have the responsibility of a wife and children and a house and all those things are tremendous. Don't miss it. Don't lose it. Take the opportunities that arise to you. Whether it be short-term missions or whether it be like a cast project, whether it be helping with flood cleanups on a week basis or whatever it may be, even a day. Look around you in your local community. There are many people who would just be so blessed to have someone jump in and help them for a day uh, with things that they get behind on. Look for older brothers and sisters in your congregation whose children are no longer at home. Uh, many of them would be very blessed to have a young man come and help them out with some of the heavy work that they regularly have to deal with. The next thing I noticed there as counsel to young men, though, is doctrine. Uncorruptness of doctrine. You'll say, wait a minute. The church gives us doctrine. Our elders give us doctrine. Yes, but you need to have doctrine. You need to understand doctrine. You need to know why we believe what we believe. Because someday you will be in that position. Someday you will be leading the family. Someday you will be leading the church. Today you're here. You're already an influence. And so sound and uncorrupt doctrines are important. And I know we're in a day when a lot of people don't want to hear that. But it's incredibly important. And so Paul tells Titus that you need to teach the young men that they need to be into the word. They need to be into and studying what is sound doctrine, what isn't sound doctrine, what's false doctrine. What if someone came to your house and you were living in Crete and you were this new Cretan convert and you just wanted to serve God. You love God. Look what he's done for you. And they said, you know, if you really love God, you need to be circumcised. That was happening. Titus needed to deal with that. And I've got news for you. Titus was uncircumcised. And I believe Paul picked him on purpose to serve in Crete, where there was already a Jewish community and there were already Jewish teachers who were Judaizing the new believers into being convinced that they needed to keep all those laws of Moses to follow Christ. How about you? What if someone came and knocked on your door and said, you know that if you don't worship on the Sabbath, you have accepted the mark of the beast. Have anybody got to get that book in the mail? Has a picture of a man with 666 across his forehead. It takes 32 pages to get to the point that if you are worshiping on the Lord's Day instead of on the Sabbath, you have accepted the mark of the beast. Is that true or is that false? Do you believe that or don't believe it? If you don't believe it, why don't you believe it? Can you refute it? Can you take their booklet and say, look here, this is what you're saying. That isn't even true. You claim that the Lord's Day and keeping the Lord's Day started in the 5th century 
and was ordained by the Catholic Pope. That's a lie. That's a lie. And I could give you grace if you didn't know better, but you're quoting early church writers from the first and second century who, in great detail, talk about the putting away of Sabbath and the keeping of the Lord's Day. So, it's important that you get sound doctrine. Extremely important in the day that we're living because we are being bombarded with false teachings on every side. All right, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned. Brothers, let's be careful. I need to too. Be careful. Those around us influence us. We're living in a wicked and adulterous generation and there's a tremendous amount of unsound speech that's being used out there. Little things that are being said. Okay, now, I'm just going to throw one of my pet peeves out. Maybe you won't agree with me. You don't have to. I'm not God. But here's one of my pet peeves. I am convinced that God alone is awesome. A cold slushy on a hot day is not awesome. I just can't help it. It's God. <laughs> God is awesome. Everything else is quite a bit under that. And I enjoy things, and I like things. But our society has taken that word and moved it from here to here. <laughs> Are we jumping in with them? Do we do it without thinking? I'm sure we do. I, I take home an old, older Amishman every day, and he's high 60s, and uh, he hears the young guys on the pickers, the, you know, the, the terminology they use, and Sometimes he'll say it. And so I hear him saying, this is awesome, or that is awesome, or you're awesome. I'm thinking, <laughs> doesn't seem to fit, does it? Well, someday I'll talk to him about it. We are called to sound speech. We should be setting the pattern, not following it. That makes sense? As believers, we should be establishing a pattern, not following someone else's. Okay, as far as that someone else, we're talking about unbelievers. <clears throat> and then that, finally, in verse 14, you know, uh, let's read 11 through 15 there again. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. You know, we are citizens of another kingdom. We are searching and seeking another land. And we are looking for the coming of our king. If that's real, if that's true, it will change how we live until he comes. We need right beliefs, but we need them put into shoe leather. God bless you. Thank you, Rick. That was awesome. Because 